Welcome to Slingshot by Arkham Ventures. On this podcast, we curate conversations with product experts about the processes and ideas that make modern day product management tick. Tune in every fortnight to listen to our latest episode. Join our Substack mailing list at slingshot.substack.com to stay informed about the latest release. Without further ado, let's dive in and listen to our guests. Puneet Singh Soni is the founder and CEO of Suki, an AI-powered, voice-enabled digital assistant for doctors, and is a seasoned product leader who has been part of high-growth teams at Flipkart, Motorola, and Google. At Google, Puneet led the Google Plus Games and Google News team. He then led the launch of Motorola's flag- flagship Moto X and Moto G products. In his most recent role before donning the hat of a founder, Puneet led all product-related initiatives at Flipkart. Puneet, it's awesome to have you here. Welcome to Slingshot. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, so Puneet, kicking off, uh, is it safe to conclude that the name uh, Suki implies happiness, like the Indian word? <laughs> uh, it, you know, as with most names, it is whatever derives most satisfaction for the person hearing the name. Um, Suki actually is not... Uh, uh, Indian name though. Uh, the, the, the Suki is a voice-enabled digital assistant. So think of digital assistants that are voice-enabled in the past. There is Alexa, Cortana. Um, it turns out that Google actually wanted to uh, build one, but Google didn't have enough syllables, uh, consonants and vowels in such a way that false positives wouldn't happen. So, you know, okay, Google or Hey Google, uh, in fact, it works still. Um, Moto X was the same, okay, Moto X. So you need to like have wake words where the vowels and consonants are in such a way that you don't have too many false positives. And then the other issue uh, is that you need a name, a wake word that's culturally off. For example, the prior name of, uh, of Suki was Robin. Uh, the problem was when we deploy in Midwest, almost every office has somebody called Robin. So they would call out to Robin and this thing would start you know, working and that you don't want that. So Suki is a Japanese word, which means uh, a loved thing or a likable thing. But it's also one of the shortest words you can have, which have consonants and vowels in such a way that you don't have too many false positives and negatives. That's basically the unfortunately geeky and nerdy reason (laughs) behind the name. Um, No emotional reason. That is primarily the reason. But interesting to hear the... Uh, the background for the name. Uh, I also saw you recently posted on LinkedIn about generational companies in uh, EV and and other areas, but you give a very low probability of Suki being a general company. Just wondering, is it something? Because most people will get demotivated with a 0.01% chance of being a generational company. 0.01% is a very high chance for anything in life to become generational. <laughs> so um, think about it this way, you know, look around you, look at the hundreds and thousands and thousands of people starting companies day in and day out. Of all the companies that have been started, of all the things that have been done, generational companies can be counted on like two hands, you know. Um, I think generational companies doesn't, 
isn't a product of just a good idea, amazing execution, but it is actually a product of unbelievable luck. And uh, anybody who can ascribe a probability to luck <laughs> is God. It's not possible. So my opinion, you could do almost everything right. Um, you could build a pretty reasonable sized company if you play your cards right. Uh, but building a generational company requires way too many variables that are of, out of human hands. Um, I think even 0.01% is, is playing with, uh, with, uh, you know, with fate a little bit. Um, what you could say is that if luck is playing with, my, with us, then maybe there is a reasonable chance you can build it. Um, so I guess that's my long-winded answer. The more brief answer is, 0.01% is a pretty big number. I mean, you know, Prashant's an entrepreneur. You guys have started your own things. You know this. If you actually had a shot, a point, a non-zero shot, whether it is 0.01% or 0.00, a non-zero shot at building what you really wanted to and your heart desire, you will take a shot at it. So... It's 0.01% of a trillion dollars. <laughs> why not <laughs> everything is possible that's why you're doing what you're doing right that's what entrepreneurs do they take bets on non-zero probability events and go for it awesome so coming to you know this intercontinental experience that you had you know you've been doing uh, you leading product talks for two decades now us and in india um across geographies and timeline have you seen the role of a product manager change or evolve since since you've been at it last uh, two decades i think the issue with the role of product management is that there is no clear single definition of it you know depending upon where you are what you're doing um, which project you are who you're surrounded with what the stage of that product is uh, the role changes um, so I guess the only thing I can say in the time that I've been doing this uh, is that at least when this, when we started, they used to tell us, here's what product management is, go take a shot. Um, but as time has gone by, most people have learned that it's an ambiguous, amorphous role. Uh, in fact, the best advice to give somebody doing product management now is, here's a variety of different tools. Use them as you wish to actually make sure that you can take product from A to B, and we will, if you're in R, then give you that definition of A to B at best. But what are those tools? How do you use them? Which of those actually are your role? Are you more an operations person because the product is there, but you need to actually scale it? Are you more of a, a visionary because the idea is not really fleshed out? Uh, are you more of a logistics person because the engineering person is really good at actual product work? Who knows, right? And so to some extent, uh, the primary change in the in the definition of product management in my perspective has been it's become more amorphous and vague uh, as time has gone by because the number of things skill-wise that a product manager does now only has expanded you know has become more than it used to be earlier yeah yeah and and since you are one of the few with a unique india us product management role um, now when you are back in the us uh, any um, compilations of what you thought were the key differences uh, or even what you're hearing of now about product management in India, what do you see as the key differences between India and the US? 
I'm asked this question quite a bit, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and it is very hard to actually. Um, Let me put a positive, uh, uh, you know, goal in that actually, Puneet, which is: should Indian PMs be aspiring for practices which are far more evolved, or do you think India would go in a totally different direction? So it's also more directional setting on what yeah. should aspirations be like sitting in India. Yeah, yeah, um, I understand. Um, I think the Indian PM doesn't need to aspire to be an American PM, just like an American PM doesn't need to aspire to be an Indian PM. I think that the work of a product manager, as I mentioned in my last answer, mm-hmm. sort of depends upon the context in which you are in. There are some things that are very basic. I agree. Like if you push it down all the way to the base level. um some amount of uh, respect for data um some ability and and uh, and context of freedom of operations um which is defined sometimes by lack of hierarchy or it's not really lack of hierarchy as much as just respect for uh you know everybody's roles and the fact that some amount of space is is needed those kind of things are universal you know you need to whether you are in us or india you're better off working in a place where you can work from first principles where you can focus on on generating and creating data based decisions and where you have your role allows you to space to actually imbue it with your vision and your or your ambition or idea of what you think the product should be those things you know in some places in some companies in us tend to be missing in more companies than not in india tend to be missing um so evening that out to me is actually critical regardless of you know which location you are in outside of that higher order skills um us in certain places tends to be much more developed and india in other places may, tends to be more developed believe it or not and i think you will believe this because you know the ecosystem um i think the mobile ecosystem in india is actually far more developed than the us ecosystem so trying to actually follow practices that are common in in us may not actually be useful mm-hmm. it turns out that uh, people who have done mobile product work in india are prof- are way savvier than folks who have done it here so there is a lot for you know american pms to learn so my summary to you is um depending on context different product managers in different locations have skills that can actually be better than the other there is no blind one side is just you know and not as good as the other and needs to emulate it the things that actually are worth making consistent everywhere is the integrity of vision the focus on data to actually drive things and providing enough space whether you call it mind space or permission probably the better word providing enough permission to people to actually go ahead and try something and i've seen that work a lot more in american companies than in indian companies it would be good if in indian companies also those things are replicated it would only make the company more powerful the product more interesting and the talent more exciting uh, contrary to sometimes leaders in india who think that you need to have tight control over everything to be able to move things forward so that's my semi positive 
semi-negative point of view <laughs> on basically the two uh, ecosystems. Yeah, I wasn't mute. Yeah, you mentioned that when it comes to mobile ecosystems, there is something which a US-based, uh, a Bay Area-based product manager can learn uh, from Indian guys. Can you expand on that? Is it like uh, how things are done or is it what is the final outcome? Is it the process or it's the outcome of scale and experience? Because the craftsmanship of building a product, is it somewhat more evolved in India with the Bayeria or is just the outcome or having been through that kind of uh, experience give you some perspective? The user leapfrogged, right? The user went from like almost no internet to mobile internet. Mm -hmm. the, the, it's just like India has just much more of a developed ecosystem, whether we like it or not. It went from like nothing, mobile ecosystem, right? And then in mobile ecosystem, people learned how to communicate, how to buy stuff, how to play games, how to, you know, do everything. And in, in US, because the ecosystem went from no internet to desktop based, laptop based internet to you know, mobile, but mobile with SMS being a primary thing. Believe it or not, they still use SMS in most places, you know, to actually communicate with each other. Um, India doesn't operate like that. So I think the regardless of the skill of the people, the, the user is much more sophisticated. The ecosystem is much more sophisticated. Hence, the use cases are going to be much more sophisticated. Everybody's trying to crack in India. Like, you know, I'll give you a very simple example. The, the the parents of the kids in the school that, that, that you know my kid goes to, they communicate using Facebook posts, like on website, they post, they have like, they comment on each other, you know. Who does that? Like, why can't you just use WhatsApp or some other messaging app? And we had to actually convert everybody. Guys, use WhatsApp, get on it. Now you will say a lot of people in US use messaging. They do, but believe it or not, there's a whole generation, especially in like beyond the younger generation who don't still. And so uh, that is unfor like you can't even imagine that in India, right? Everything happens on a messaging app. So it's a very simple example that when every transaction is happening on messaging app, then all things that are built on top of it, for example, you know, payments, playing games, socializing, parties, event, everything will be built on top of it. So to me, uh, it is a nature of the ecosystem and the user, not necessarily the person, the PM, because the PM is just a product of the ecosystem and user you're gonna put in front of them. And it turns out that the product managers in India have to deal with these much more sophisticated setups. So they end up actually learning uh, to solve those problems a lot more than I would think product managers in US do. Now, PMs in US end up dealing with more sophisticated situations re revolving machine learning and artificial intelligence and its actual application in, you know, in the kind of cutting edge thing that is done here. So then they have a strength there, but where it comes to, in my opinion, consumer-based stuff, India and China are quite ahead now uh, in, from US in terms of their ability to produce new ideas. That's why you see some of the more interesting companies come out of China now, uh, while US is still trying to figure all this out. So the trend you started, Puneet, of uh, actually taking uh, a call to come to India to run products for an Indian company, 
uh, we are seeing some others follow you even now uh, there's been movement from the bay area to not just india now but to southeast asia as well uh, and this goes into where do you find talent it's still a challenging uh, bit when you're building companies um, what do you think is driving this trend of you know leaving a very exciting place and then coming and you know uh, coming to the wild west and trying um, to do product management in india or southeast asia is it you know what do you think is driving this is it more uh, nostalgia or you know just better economic opportunities more impact any any uh, thoughts on that yeah i mean i i think there is a there is always a group of people who are looking to go back you know they're just constantly asking themselves how can they actually get back to india they probably have personal reasons you mentioned nostalgia things like that that's fine that has always happened like every generation every decade there's people who come back for those reasons i actually think that's a pretty standard thing across not just india but in all major expat setups right that happens what was special about india and china actually china used to happen uh, i has always happened for quite some time is there in both places there is uh, more exciting things to do in some situations than there would be in us mm-hmm. um i really really do believe that you know i personally came to india because i just think it was a much more interesting problem probably the most interesting problem to solve uh, outside of all the opportunities that were at my disposal so i unapologetically came for um the excitement of the opportunity and india and china both offer an incredible wealth of very interesting problems to solve at this point of time and and a few years ago too um that you know that people who have been in us can leverage some of their abilities and strength and attack but have to still recontextualize themselves in the way, in the place they are in and so my perspective is uh, the difference that's happened in the last few years is primarily that the nostalgia crowd used to always be there but now the opportunity and excitement oriented crowd is also starting to show up and it's become a little bit of a global setup you know could go to india and do something uh, could go to europe and do something mm-hmm. could stay in U- us and do something um the ability to reorient yourself towards these things are not product management related as much as culture um you as long as you have a relatively acute sense of the culture you are in and can embrace it mm-hmm. the skills you can kind of transfer over time with each other and recontextualize um and so i think it's very exciting i think it needs to be nurtured a lot more and there should be more cross pollination to be honest um i haven't kept tabs on the last year or so you know if there's been more talent who's shown up uh when i was coming there was probably a a uh, uh, interesting time flipkart was about to you know take off to the next level uh, they had always been thinking they would find somebody in this role uh, i was the right person at the right time there was you know enough tre- it looked like the trend kicked off but i'm sure there were people before me who went and people after me who went for independent reasons uh, so i think you should all be very proud uh, it's a great time to go to india and build something Mm-hmm. uh there's so many problems to solve and i'm sure you guys are investing in trying to find those problems anyways sure thanks um this is actually more related to utkarsh uh, so i'll let him ask this uh, next question it's about your apm program at flipkart so uh, 
Puneet, uh, from what I understand, while at Flipkart, you started the APM program, which was something very new for the Indian ecosystem. There weren't a lot of APM-specific opportunities at that point of time. Uh, wanted to understand from you what are some sort of other initiatives that Indian companies can actually uh, start to get young talent and then nurture these uh, young PMs to eventually go on to founder or senior PM roles. Yeah, I mean. It's interesting you mentioned that. To be honest, like one of the things that you know, I personally feel very proud of uh, in our work that we did in India uh, in Flipkart, we did a bunch of things. We started TGIF. There was no TGIF. Uh, we started to deploy OKRs at a large scale across the entire company. There were some people doing it, but nobody really doing it. We built uh, the maternity and paternity policy, which probably is one of the best in the country at this point of time. Um, the APM program. My God, like you know, the the uh, the general decision making GPS sessions to make calls, uh, innovation team demo day. My, there's just a list. You know, you could create a whole infrastructure for an entire company with some of the things that we did there. Um, the APM program is is critical uh, for a variety of reasons. First of all, the talent in India is just there is no place in the world which has more talent. To be honest, it's just incredible, and. Uh, the the talent is all super young. Um, Indian schools are okay. You know, I'm probably going to get somebody pissed when I say this, but I think Indian schools are okay. Uh, technically good, um, but can do with a lot more creativity um, in terms of how they actually nurture people and allow them to think about things. The APM program is a program of permission uh, because what it does is it takes exceptionally talented uh, people who are just graduating from school and uh, and put them in a rotation program. So, you know, over two years, you can rotate, I think up to three times, if I'm not wrong or four, I forgot now, but like you can rotate a bunch of times. No, actually it's two times, sorry. So over two years, you rotate once, then you can, find another rotation and go rotate again. And uh, you're allowed to choose any opportunity you want to rotate to. So for example, APM in the first year might decide, I want to do personalization and recommendations team. And the second year will say, I want to actually work on the Android app team. Um, or the first year they may say, I want to work in the buyers team. And then the second year they may decide, I'm going to work on the inventory management team. I'm just creating something up. So you can rotate into any area you want to. The trick with the APM program is you're, you're supposed to be given a very critical project that really, really matters. And not just because you're you know, some entry-level person, so let's just give you like a few things to write and just support it. You will own a product that is critical end-to-end. Second, you have permission to, to question everything and permission to walk into the room and say, I disagree, here's why. And no matter who it is, all the way from the CXO down to the, you know, the PM2 or PM1 who's working with you, they should pause and listen to you and understand you. The best products, some of the better products in Google were built by APMs. Because when you marry the resources of a large company and the permission that it can bestow, along with the creativity and fresh mind of a super smart person who's just graduated, 
you build incredible, incredible companies. APMs are, you know, right now leading product and CEOs are some of the best companies around. And it's because of this marriage, this critical marriage of permission and creativity that was done. So we are very proud of it. Um, and the idea was to actually handpick people from a variety of schools and bring them in and rotate them and actually just build the next cadre of product management. Because you're not going to learn it at school. There's not enough companies in India that can actually teach you product management effectively. Uh, the, the skills required are ambiguous, so who the hell knows anyways what it takes. With an APM program, experientially, you end up building. And then this, the basics of product management, write your PRDs properly, make sure that you follow your OKR process, use data and create dashboards that you're looking at. You know, all of the structure of product management is just intuitively taught because, you know, APM2 and APM1 are working together with PM2 and they're all kind of doing this. So for anybody who's listening, you know, I strongly recommend you consider doing this uh, in your company. Add your own flavor. Call it whatever you want to call it. But if you have a, a small core group of PMs who you think are, who are strong, who understand product management intuitively, you need to build a pseudo training program within the team if you want to create more PMs like that. It's not going to show up randomly by just hiring people and putting them in PM positions. Um, at least the quality and the quantity both that you need. Long-winded answer occurs to your question, but you got me all excited. But uh, I'm glad I did, yeah. <laughs> but the description you gave for the APM program, it kind of gives an impression there's a high gestation uh, period for somebody to be contributing member of the PM team if you go through this training thing. So is it suitable for a company at a certain stage of and scale or a seed stage or series A level companies kind of can also do this because the thing is by the time you hit series a a lot of cultural premises are like set it's hard to go back and rewrite those that dna and this is something like a dna so how do you kind of balance these two factors i agree with you i think that's a very important uh, nuance it is harder to do a apm program thoughtfully in a smaller company um, um the problem is I don't think, I think they end up getting really compelling and interesting uh, problems to solve. The problem is you need to give them um, attention because otherwise, the, you know, it, it, you know, they just, it, a person can just wander away in a particular direction. So you do need the constraints and structure of attention of people who are senior with the freedom and permission or people who are, you know, kicking off their careers and doing it mixed in together. Prashant, to your point, that's very hard to provide in a small startup. Uh, because who has time to give attention to anything? You're barely, you're like running on fumes at some point. I think there is a point around C, C, D timeframe where there is a handful of PMs now and it looks like you're going to start growing, that you can start adding a couple of handpicked people as APMs to your team and start building the early foundations of this program. Um, and then, you know, as team scales, then the program can scale. But yes, it's definitely a much harder thing to do before C or D stage companies. 
So what kind of a cultural guardrail you suggest we should have in like series before series A and in seed stage so that whenever we hit that scale and if we hit that scale, we are, have the mindset and that cultural capital to kind of incorporate this kind of a program because it goes against the instinct. There is a power equation and everything. So how, what kind of a guardrail we can put? The best guardrail is don't hire PMs. You know, when you are in a seed, series A or B company, the founder is the PM, you know, and uh, you can hire product management, um, but then make them founding people because you need to give them permission. You know, that sometimes people hire PMs just as PMs, like, you know, in a, and I'm talking about really early stage companies like Seed and A and, you know, B also starts to get a little mature. So at least those two stages, um, I don't see the point of, you know, you may have one off PM here and there, but I don't really see the point of PMs uh, in that stage. The founder is the PM. You're the one who's supposed to actually do product management. And uh, you may hire another person to help do with product, but then that's a founding person and should be imbued with enough permission. Um, so the guardrails to me are don't hire PMs. If you hire them, then hire them as founding people. And when you're ready to actually thoughtfully start scaling a product team, which could be post B, then start thinking about not just the, the senior PMs that you're hiring, but start thinking about like creating a cadre of really, really amazingly talented PMs who are at the entry level, who will actually then one day run your company for you. So no lateral entry of PM even at that stage. It's hard. Some do it. Um, what happens is a lot of people start doing it almost to kind of offload work. But what are you offloading? You know, are you offloading product thinking? That's hard to offload. You know, you're the founder. Are you offloading program management? Then call it program management. You know, don't call it product. So I think uh, everything that anybody says there's a there is an exception to the rule, but let's be clear what's the rule and what's an exception. Interesting. Green, what are your thoughts continuing that question? Like uh, if working with a CEO, founder who's a product thinker, what's your preference? What generally works best? Uh, like a, a Twitter kind of product-oriented CEO or a Airbnb type design uh, CEO? or like Salesforce is a very business oriented CEO, what, what works best uh, for a product person joining in terms of relationship and coordination? You know, somebody very uh, smart around me said that, you know, whoever, whatever function your CEO is from, that function has the most pain in life. So, you know, now I have a couple of PMs that, you know, uh, <laughs> there, it's just so painful for them, right? And then, you know, if you're a sales leader who's become a CEO, then the sales team is just, it's a mess for them, right? It's so hard. So I think, uh, I think the answer to your question is, there's no equation to these things. People come up with them, you know, in, in hindsight, we create patterns where there are none. Um, Airbnb could have been a product CEO, mm -hmm. you know, um, they could have actually figured out a way to run Salesforce from a design perspective if they really wanted to. Yes, there is enterprise SaaS. There is product. a product person, you know, having an option. You know, he has been made offers by three companies. He's a senior level person. He's thinking of 
you know, just his life, how it's going to play out, working with CEOs of three different kinds. How should he think or she think? Hmm. Interesting question. I don't think that it should matter that much on what background that person has, whether that CEO came from sales or product or design. I think what should matter more is, is this person somebody you want to work with and for? Do you really like the idea? And will you be given the freedom to create your own impact and your own shot at it? So I don't know if I would care too much about what the background of that person is, you know, to be honest. There's no way That's, to predict how life can be more predict. Uh, as I told you, if you're a product person working for product CEO, your life's only miserable, you know? So by that token, you probably want to work for the design CEO, the sales CEO. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, there may be more empathy, you know, and more understanding of things. And uh, so there are pros and cons. I don't think it has anything to do with the background of the CEO. It has more to do with the character and personality of the CEO and what they, what you want from them. Um, yeah, that's what I think. Well, there was a cat who very quietly opened the door to check if uh, daddy is still on the call or not. So, <laughs> you said, is that happened behind the scenes? I didn't notice. Yeah, yeah. Very nicely done. He just peeked in and out. <laughs> yeah, it's probably like, when are you going to come to bed? But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had so, we'll, we'll keep uh, moving along. So, you know, before I hand it off, uh, what's the um, uh, advice you would give to a product person who's planning to venture out on their own, you know, in the short term? You know, now that you've done that, you've been at it for some time. I think it depends on which life stage this product person is at. Um, I think the one advice I can definitely give is product is not the most important thing at the start. Go to market is actually more important. Um, a lot of product people think, oh, we'll build a product and people will come. That's not really true. Uh, the first thing to always figure out is go to market. Is somebody interested in buying your product? Mm. Can you sell it? Will they pay? How will you find them? Um, are there any existential threats that stop you from actually getting to them? Those are the questions I would answer. Then I'll try to figure out if I can actually build it. It's you know more or less you'll find a way to build the product. You cannot find a way to construct go to market. You know, it exists or it doesn't exist. And you can find it, but you can't create it. Um, so I guess the biggest advice I can give any product person who's starting to build a company is products not the primary thing, at least in the early days of the company. Once you figure out that the go-to-market has legs, there is nothing more important than product. <laughs> Get that done. But uh, don't think about product before you've sorted out product go-to-market. But that go-to market, can it be product-led also? In that case, the product person has a slightly higher influence in the whole scheme of things. Absolutely. No question. You know, and by the way, like the product person who's there to become a CEO is no longer a product manager. You know, that's the other thing that a lot of uh, product people do. They continue doing product. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and it, like, you know, intrinsically you're a product person. So therefore you should like, no. You know, you can influence product. You have a very high stake in the product. Your point of view is more valid than most people, no question. But you're not a product leader, you're the CEO. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a very big difference between those two roles. Um, in fact, you're better off over-indexing on the other things, mm-hmm. given that this thing you will probably anyways pay attention to, you know, regardless. So um, your point is valid, mm-hmm. uh, that a product-led go-to-market can be a, a benefit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whether it is product-led or you find it through a different channel or you do something else, you have to first find the go-to-market. Mm-hmm figure out if it's viable and then you can figure out if I can have to create something with product that pushes it or I have to do some partnerships to push it. So again, biggest advice that I can give people is don't be a product manager, be the CEO and remember go to market is more important than product in the early days of the company and then product takes over. Since we're talking about the functional kind of subdivision within a company, I mean, we saw like with the emergence of social networks and like Facebook and all, there was emergence of a new discipline, like growth, you know, there's yes. like product support and all. What's, is there in now we are in the middle of so-called wave of AI services. So the two questions here, one essentially, do you see another such discipline emerging here? And be, so yeah, I'll ask this follow-up question later, but do you see a new discipline emerging over here? AI specific company? There is something there, you know, there is no question. Um, I don't know what we should call it though, because there are a couple of different parts to this. Mm-hmm. There is the ability to find problems to solve. You can break every company into small problems that you're going to solve, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's identify the problem. And then the question you have to ask is what data? Do you input and output to kind of like replicate the solution for this problem? Mm-hmm. And then where do you get that data? Mm-hmm. And once you get that data, how do you clean that data and structure that data? Mm-hmm. And then you get that structured data, then the act of actually creating a model comes out of it. Mm-hmm. And then now how do you deploy the model in such a way that not only do you solve the problem, but also generate more data? So this this skill set is new. This skill set, you know, some bits and pieces have been used by other people in many setups, but it is somewhat new, right? I'm going to figure out how to understand orthopedic surgeons mm-hmm. uh, such that the ontology is known and naturally that the note is, the clinical documentation is auto-generated. I need to, to get thousands and thousands of orthopedic patient encounter documentation. I need to extract out of their orthopedic patient encounter documentation structures that actually tell me how a typical orthopedic surgeon would deal with typical diseases and issues that they're working on. Mm-hmm. I will clean that up so that now it's in a format that can create the tagged data that I need. That will create an orthopedics-focused model that I can then use and deploy to actually do stuff. This, this thing that we are doing here can be extrapolated to extracting billing information, figuring out what medications does a person need, uh, predictively actually figuring out what kind of problems are they gonna be coming in for and so on and so forth. Lots of things can be done. But all of them can be broken down into, I need a bunch of data. I need to tag it, I need to create models. There is some role here. Some people used to do this chief data scientist thing Mm -hmm. Um, and then that was quite not enough 
And then there are others who just build ML models, they become ML leads, that's not quite enough. But there is a way of thinking here that actually is product oriented, which is different from typical product work we do, where we say, okay, well, you know, we are going to like look at a user behavior, replicate it, build something related to that. So you are onto something. I don't know what the right tag for that will be, but there is going to be machine learning and model-oriented product people and engineers both, and actually one-day designers too, because you're going to have to design a product that actually can do these data collection and push things. So that leads to my follow-up question on the same point, essentially. Uh, is the product manager in now AI industry is best suited to fill that role like the marketing people or the product people were somewhat most suited to fill the growth roles in Facebook and all. Uh, and second is essentially, since AI essentially is a black box, all the learning models are black box. So what happens to the whole idea of domain expertise? Because there is no domain expertise. You feed in a bunch of data after cleaning and setting up the pipeline, of course, but the whole notion of domain expertise kind of goes out of the window. Yeah. I mean, domain expertise, to be honest, Prashant is always passe. I mean, what domain expertise? I, you know, you know, I'm no genius, but I, I was in doing enterprise software. Then I did like search, then I did mobile apps, then I did games, then I did social networking, then I did hardware, then I did e-commerce. I'm doing healthcare right now. Who cares about domain expertise from a sector perspective, right? Okay. I think what we all have in common is that we are technical people. And so what, technology and engineering teaches us is the ability to learn. Okay. And so if you give us three, four months in anything, we'll find a way. The, the thing that you are talking about is different though. You know, the ability to actually, um, to be able to work with ML engineers and understand the impact of what a model can, a really true model can do. The ability to understand how to structure data and clean it so that you can provide it to them. The ability to understand what kind of data is required to solve which problem. That is a skill set. Um, and I think over time, smart, clever PMs will actually attain that skill set. I actually do believe in some very short order, all PMs will need this skill set. Because you aren't going to be really doing much beyond like applying some variations of ML to a lot of problems anyways, in my opinion. So, you know, again, I don't, I think the domain expertise point you're making is valid. I don't think it matters. I actually think even the ML focus stuff over time is just going to be a toolbox that all PMs will have to learn if they're going to be effective PMs. So There'll be designers who may not do it, but PMs will need to learn. So now we look at a typical job posting, there seems to be evolving preference toward like front-end PMs, there's logistic PMs, infrastructure PM, back-end PMs, and growth PMs. Do you see in next two years, there is something called a data science PM or something, or it, it will be the data science people who will like take over that description? I, I mean, I, I actually think, uh, I actually think like, for example, at Suki, regardless of, you know, we don't have that many PMs, but the few PMs that we do have, um, they all have to have a good understanding of data and ML. Um, otherwise, what are they designing for? They will not even they will not understand how this data can actually be exposed. They will not understand the output of the backend to be able to design properly. Also, so um, I think it's going to converge a little bit. 
Um, I do think there will be people who will be extraordinarited. And when you ask, ask for like an MLPM, for example, you will get some people who have had experience in doing it. Mm-hmm. But I think an, an average PM who shows up should have reasonable exposure to front end, reasonable exposure to back end infrastructure, and understand that in different situations, they may have to work with all sorts of teams. Mm-hmm. Similarly, they'll have to have reasonable exposure to the ML side of things too. It's just going to have to happen. One last question about the AI thing before we move on to the generic product management rubric. Um, in consumer internet, we kind of have this very cliched axiom that uh, in India, you come for DAU and MAUs and for ARPUs and revenue, you go to West Europe and America and all. A somewhat similar axiom in terms of AI world is emerging, which says you in India, you go to get the training data set and all, but for actual paying customer, you go to West. Do you see that's true? That means we'll again become a data bank for the world, not the core innovation source? I think it's a very interesting question. I do think that there are companies that are super successful in India that are creating significant amounts of revenue by tapping into Indian use cases mm-hmm. and Indian flows. Uh, they are not tracking just MAU, DAU. Yeah, those are all nice vanity metrics that you can raise a couple of round, rounds on, but you can't really win on it. You have examples of companies around you that create real revenue. Um, you in know, AI space. Not in AI space yet. Um, not in AI space yet. But you know, about a decade ago, people would say in consumer space and people would say not in consumer space yet. Now you can say that there are companies that actually have significant. By the way, India has some very compelling enterprise companies also. It is true to your point that they make most of their money in US, mm-hmm. not in India mm-hmm. today. But I actually think this world will change. Whether it'll change in five years or 10 years, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think typically what happens is first people start making money in the consumer space. Then people start making money in some seams of the enterprise space. What is the companies that are coming up now? Kata Book and all. They're kind of pseudo SMB-ish, you know, half consumer, half enterprise kind of a thing. And then a little later, you will have a true-blooded enterprise company. Yes, the US and West will probably generate most of its revenue, but some will start popping out in India. And then AI will follow. You know, I do think that there will be company that will make a lot of its revenue in AI. Now, the, do remember, you can build a great consumer company that's an AI company. So I think that this will happen. It will probably happen a lot sooner than we think. And discounting that is to our peril. And somebody who was running a sim AI company told me about somebody turning an enterprise AI company once told me that most of the consumer AI is essentially a lot of nested FLs and rule-based engines. So yeah. is it true? Do you? I think that, you know, I mean, in my space, you know, I'm working on voice mm-hmm. um, and I am attacking healthcare. Mm-hmm. I actually think one of the biggest I said this in my last post, one of the biggest tech companies ever built will be in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's, there's so many problems to solve. There's so many. It's just amazing how broken it is, uh, not just in US, across the world. Um, I'm solving, I'm starting, my entry point is voice. Mm-hmm. And 
the the idea is that let's use voice in a digital assistant to allow doctors to quickly document a patient encounter, which is a critical thing for billing and liability reasons. But then you also have a whole source of data because all data in healthcare is created by doctors or most of it. So now you can use that to solve other problems. So that's the thesis. All the existing companies that are doing voice are kind of like string match command companies, you know? You know, you insert my regular surgical consent. If you don't say exactly that same word, it doesn't work. A true ML-based setup would say the patient consented to surgery. The patient, I discussed risks and benefits of this uh, operation with the patient. And it would say, oh, that's a surgical consent and put it in the right place. So um, what I see is a lot of rules-based systems. Uh, what I see in our future is a lot of ML-based stuff, uh, true ML-based stuff. In the early days of Suki, when we basically had almost no infrastructure, even we had like random rules-based things that we put together to just kind of band-aid and stay together. But then we got enough data that we could actually build these models. And they are not, they are and are not really that much of a rocket science if you have the right engineers um, and the right kind of data to do it. So I guess long-winded answer to your question, but yes, um, a lot of this AI stuff is, I mean, the dog walking app in US has AI in it, you know, so everything is, they're all 99% rules-based stuff or human-based stuff behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But there are some very compelling AI companies too and compelling AI problems to solve too if you have the right engineer. Uh do you have any specific PM framework you follow, some kind of a framework to manage the roadmap? What's your process of deciding what feature to build, what to prioritize? Can you walk us through the whole sprint cycle? It's, um, I, I mean, everybody ends up following their own setup over time, but you know, at the highest order, the way my company runs is we, um, in December timeframe, put down 10, 10 bullet points, which actually define what the company will be one year from now. More often than not, you know, you kind of are half there because the world in a startup changes so dramatically that things change. But the idea of a plan is not really to meet the plan, it's just to start with the plan. Mm -hmm. so, um, so we start with this thing, 2021 goals, mm -hmm. that we actually socialize a lot, make sure everybody understands, this is where we want to end up at the end of next year. That provides a framework for us to start doing quarterly OKRs. And so along with that, three weeks before uh, the next quarter starts, we do what we call uh, the next quarter's OKRs. Yeah. It's usually both top down and bottoms up. I read, write down what I think some of the goals for next quarter should be. The team generates its own, and then we basically relatively quickly merge onto one combined list that is a mix of top down and bottoms up. Um, and then once we have decided that, we're off to the races. Uh, now, typically over the period that you have been operating, you get a lot of user input, a lot, um, especially if you're listening clearly to what the user is saying. So half of your relatively immediate and near-term roadmap writes itself. It's just a question of prioritizing based on capability and, and need and contracts that you have at hand. Mm -hmm. And so um, there are a little bit of space left for some future-facing things that we know are coming, but the user is not asking right now. 
but more often than not, what the user's asking, what the team thinks it needs to do, what our bigger picture goals are usually converge if it's a relatively well-functioning setup. And so once the quarter starts, then we just execute. We don't really talk too much at that point in time. There's no debate on what to build. Yeah, you can iterate if something goes completely off the rails, but more often than not, three-month period, just go and just build these things out. And so typically, we have launches weekly, which in healthcare is unheard of. Mm -hmm. um, actually, behind the scenes, you have launches daily, but user-facing, we give launches weekly. Uh, these guys spend like year, year and a half waiting for an upgrade uh, to a to a to a you know piece of software. So they're shocked when every week Suki gets smarter because some feature keeps popping out here and there. And so um, and then we rinse and repeat. You know, basically by the last three weeks of the the first quarter, we start planning for Q2 in a two week process. Put it all together and then just go re-execute again. That's how we do it. Beyond that, it's the same stuff everybody does. Every feature has linked to a PRD. The PRD has to be a particular structured uh, format. We have product review sessions every week where we review PRDs. Typically, we spend 10 minutes reading it together as a team. Then we just go through all the main decisions and make sure we are all sorted out. We do similar design reviews. We do similar commercial reviews. And between that and the OKRs, you have enough of a structure to run the company. And which KPI you uh, monitor for a performance of a product manager and how it is different from a transaction-based company like Flipkart, let's say? Yeah, I mean, you know, everything can be boiled down to some unit of transaction. For example, in our case, the transaction that I care most about is patient encounter using Suki. A patient and a doctor seeing each other with Suki being used to document that encounter is a unit. And so we track that. We track that day long. We, tr we track that not just at the basis of how many got done in a, in a day. We track how many different specialties did it. We track what time frames were they looked at. We track which, which device and, you know, were they on web, were they on iOS, which were they on Android. We track within that, did they actually do billing using it? Did they ex add problems? Did it automatically add problems in? Did they did it slurp in data from the EMR and pre-populate the notes so that you could do it? So we track every aspect of this based on the PM and what the features that they're uh, they're doing. But the unit of transaction for us is patient and count. Sure. Okay. So again, something that's user-facing and somewhat mildly disconnected from actual revenue. Because remember, revenue is a factor of, you know, retention revenue is ultimately a factor of delight. And delight is a factor of usage, and usage is a factor of whatever unit of transaction you come up with at the end of the day. So, Puneet, you mentioned that healthcare has a treasure trove of problems to solve, and it's extremely uh, broken in that sense, in, in the sense of opportunities. Uh, I understand from what Suki is trying to solve is it's uh, trying to reduce the doctor burnout due to admin work. So uh, two questions there. One was, how did you settle on this as the primary problem to uh, solve for? And then uh, how did you sort of settle on a voice-based digital assistant as a as the primary solution for it? Like, why not a chatbot? Why not a, a, a case when sort of a, a functional loop or something like that? Yeah, I mean, as I said, when you start a company, the first thing you ask yourself is go to market. You know, and so for me, once I had decided I was going to spend some time doing healthcare, the question I was really trying to answer was, what, where is, is there a problem that I can solve that 
will somebody will pay for right at the end of the day and there was uh, and and the other thing i was interested in personally was like you want to play to your advantages and in my case the strength i can bring is um i have experience with mobile i have experience with voice in moto on we actually built the first always on voice phone even before siri and alexa was around so we do understand voice um and uh, we have access to engineers and people who actually have done this kind of work so question number 1 always is are you solving a real problem question number 2 is you know is the solution of that aligning with a technical trend in our case the trend was the commoditization of voice and machine learning and question number 3 is is any of those two an inherent advantage for you for me voice and ai and ml is an inherent advantage i can i can build a team and put that together that many others may not be able to and so um so that's how i i figured out you know that i wanted to solve this problem now the the question was also like is it a entry point to a much larger play you know as i mentioned clinical documentation is very important because it reduces doctor burnout which means they will actually want to try something you know think a good analogy to this is uh, is uh, salesforce okay there was a time when like uh, managers and folks sales people and their managers mostly were burning out because of lack of crm and uh, they had all this on prem stuff they were using so the the technical insight was um on prem to cloud the problem was you know the lack of effective crm software when you have built cloud crm sales people adopt this hand over fist like they go crazy trying to use it all data in enterprise start flowing through this system now you can use this to build force.com all the other erp systems etc and then suddenly you have salesforce this general framework can be applied anywhere what is a problem doctors are burning out what's a tech trend ai and voice commoditization what can you what can you bring to the table build a voice based a digital assistant doctors will adopt it hand over fist if they do that all data in healthcare flows through mostly is created by doctors you can use that in a structured format before it goes to the emr you can use that to actually solve billing coding clinical decision support clinical decision optimization and one day if you do enough of this work and have a database also what is a emr you know so there's a lot of very interesting things you can solve if you start either owning the front end or the back end uh and go from there so that's how we basically thought about the problem uh now if we play this whole roadmap out utkarsh it could take 15 years but the idea of rethinking healthcare nobody's going to do that in a few years anyways got it uh puneet it also just just want to understand user adoption better uh from what i understand there is like a very high level of accuracy required for uh this to be adopted by the traditional doctors as a product uh wanted to understand how did you go about figuring your first 100 customers how did you uh, go about getting them and then some other user adoption challenges that you face across the way of scaling yeah no this is a real problem healthcare is inherently very conservative and uh, very difficult for uh for adoption of new technologies you know the argument people make sometimes is that you have to play along with the systems and behavior if you want them to actually adopt it to some extent that's true but not quite like you know if you know 
the key is to give enough benefit that user behavior changes. Um, otherwise, you know, people are asking, why should I swipe on glass slabs when iPhone was launched? Enough apps showed up and everybody wants to buy one. So you do have to figure out what benefit you're giving the user and it has to be significant for them to actually change user behavior even more so in doctors. There's a couple of things that were playing uh, our way, by the way. You know, number one, um, doctors are inherently very structured people. Most doctors, you know, for family practice is like different exception, but most specialists tend to just see the same problems again and again. Orthopedic surgeons see like six orthopedics issues 95% of the time. So there's a lot of repeatability to what they do. And there's a repeat, lot of repeatability how, what they, how they react also, which is important if you're gonna start building an AI system built on top of this, uh, this behavior. Second thing is the, the universe of, of medical ontology is, is, is small. It looks like doxycycline is a very complicated word, but the more complicated a word, the less chance it's gonna be confused with something else. And so therefore it's a fixed universe versus like general purpose consumer where your kid's screaming at Alexa to play some song and there could be like thousands of variations of that song, right? So fixed ontology, repeatable behavior, and by token of their training, doctors are trained to speak to voice products. They have been taught to dictate. They have been taught to use scribes. They've been taught to use transcription services. They have also been taught to speak to each other in a particular way because of the, the medical training. So now you see a system that a user who's amenable to voice, a system that's fixed and inherently a behavior that's repeatable. Classic you know, use case of voice. That's how you pull together basically this structure and this problem set to solve. Now in the course of answering that, I've forgotten what the question you were asking. But, you know, but this is basically uh, why we actually decided to do this. Yes, your adoption question. Inherently, that means adoption. You have a better chance, chance at adoption. Doesn't mean it's easier because health systems will block you and, and put a lot of necessary guardrails along the way but the user is burning out and this is right up their alley in terms of how they have to use. So you have a shot. What we did in the early days with Kirsch is uh, we um, built a very, very, very rudimentary product. The, the, the dumbest version of Suki that was possible, basically. And then we went and we requested doctors to come and just mimic a patient encounter. So they would actually just sit there and talk and they would try to use our product, it was pretty clunky. But from day, literally the fifth or sixth week of the development of this product, we had actual users trying to use the product. And uh, over time, you know, it, if you listen carefully, it only keeps getting better. So that's how we actually tracked it to a point where some doctor, one doctor, six months in said, you know, I will use this in my practice. And then a few months later, one doctor said, I'll pay for this. And then a few months later, a clinic said, I'll pay for this. And then it starts taking off. So it can be done in a very iterative consumer way. You just have to start from the user. Got it. And keen to understand, how did you go about doing that active listening of actually building up the accuracy, building out the backend for this and making it uh, perfect so as to fit around 80, 90% of the use case? Oh, we initially did a lot of crazy stuff. Like we um, we used Google Speech APIs initially, which you know are okay, but they're not great for medical use cases. You know, bilateral knees would become Beyonce Knowles. 
all sorts of random problems would happen. Um, we sent every note that was created to a human being who would listen to it karaoke style and correct it because the doctor can't be given a, a wrong note. But the corrections created errata. And the errata along with audio is very valuable data you can use to create models. So there is a lot of very interesting um, techniques we used to make sure the doctor would get absolutely clean and accurate notes, but then we would actually take on the burden of getting the errata. You know, you launch every new feature Suki launches. We initially launch it in some hybrid mode where we do a cross-check ourselves using our team. We collect the data of all the errors that we make, create, refine the model, and when it hits a particular bar of accuracy, then we start actually allowing the user directly to see the output rather than um, them see, uh, you know, rather than have somebody in QA in the middle seat. So typical AI-based product development requires you to actually have human components for data tagging and cleaning and structuring in QA. And, uh, and I understand once the user adoption happens and once they sort of start uh, using it frequently, uh, the behavior shaping and the engagement remains high because it's so inherently solving a very fundamental uh, need. So the basically the percentage coverage of that patient encounter would be very high, I think, in terms of the cases. Some that of our doctors end up saving 80% of all time on documentation every day. This means you could end up going home one hour earlier every single day, maybe one and a half hours earlier every single day. If I gave a doctor whose every hour is so expensive, one and a half hours every day that they could just go back earlier not have to repeatedly type notes in that one and a half hours and say net result of all this is pay me some amount on subscription basis, they would absolutely pay for it. You know, it's worth, they could, if they saw one patient in a whole week extra, they could pay for the product. So you just create tremendous value by giving them so much time back and then user behavior changes happen. Is there also some problem solving you're doing around building up this user engagement, something analogous to the app ecosystem that happened for a, for the smartphone revolution? Or is it like a, is it like a very solved problem that engagement comes once adoption happens? Well, I mean, there's a bunch of different, very clever things you can do, but you have to be very, very thoughtful about the flow of a doctor. Remember, you know, being over smart in this space is not going to help you. These guys are like, no, they are dealing with patients. They, they are not interested in anything that comes in their way. It has to be completely non-intrusive and completely out of the way. So the question is the primary vector in which you can create engagement is, is there something you can do that makes them use tech less, not more? You know, if they can focus on the patient and things are just getting done, they will use your product. And so, a really deep understanding of, of doctor workflow is required to be able to do that. You know, For example, one of the things these guys do is when they add a problem, then there is something called an ICD-10 code that's extracted out of it. That actually decides how much money is paid by insurance for that particular problem diagnosis. A simple thing that you could do is as the user actually dictates, oh, you know, this person is hyperkalemia, it extracts the ICD-10 code, attaches it to the node automatically. Super small thing. A lot of doctors forget to add these codes all the time. And so therefore they probably have revenue leakage, but now they're making a lot more money because we are just attaching it and letting them confirm it as we go. So you have to like look very carefully 
the motivations and the workflow of the doctor and keep finding small things you can do so that they have to do less with technology, not more. And then engagement happens, oddly enough. The less they use the product, the more engaged they will be. Understood, got it. Uh, Puneet, uh, I think one last question before we move on to the uh, rapid fire. Uh, wanted to understand what are your hiring principles? I, I uh, gathered from uh, Suki's uh, page that uh, the product org is headed by a doctor. And uh, how do you sort of hire for uh, PMs at Suki? What are some traits that you look for? Well, I hire for PMs at Suki just the way I would hire for PMs anywhere, to be honest. The only difference is um, that you want to optimize for, you want to optimize slightly for healthcare and slightly for startups. Um, startup because you do need grit and persistence, way more grit and persistence than you would look for in a PM that you're hiring for Flipkart. Um, you know, it's a hard job either ways, but there's going to be a lot of failure along the way. And if you're going to be disheartened or find that difficult, then you will burn out. So we do look a little bit more than usual for grit and persistence. Um, and then you do need to have passion for this space. You know, I, I don't have any emotional reason that I started a company in healthcare, but now that I've started it, you know, I'm ambitious and I'm going to build a very, very powerful, successful company. So that means that I have to be passionate. I have to care about this user and I have to make sure this user succeeds and wins. People who don't care about a space will find it very hard to build startups in that space. And because uh, it's not, startups are not, I think, you know, somebody said this also, so startups are not a very good financial decision. Uh, they're also not a very good logical decision for your career. They are usually a romantic decision. So when you have to do something like this, then you have to care very deeply for the problem you're solving and the user you're solving for. And if you find somebody who's a career PM, who's good, who's probably like stubborn about things and wants to have grit and persistence, but does not really care deeply about the use case, they're not gonna find it interesting. It's, it's actually kind of boring after a while if you don't care, uh, especially with all the failure you're gonna see along the way. So I would say, I care for all the typical PM characteristics that I would care everywhere else. Along with that, I care for grit and persistence and, and passion for healthcare. So uh, Puneet, moving on to uh, the rapid fire section of our uh, discussions, uh, I see a very full bookshelf there in the background. Uh, wanting to understand uh, which is your favorite book, if you have any one, but I think there would be multiple. Yeah, I do not like or read any business books. Um, or technology books, which means that like most people who ask if you have a tech book or a business book you like, I have, I mean, probably a couple that were interesting were the Shoe Dog by Nike, uh, the Nike story, Shoe Dog, and then there was uh, the Hard Things by Hard Things. Those are the two that I read mostly because I prescribed it for our offsite so that everybody else read it, which means I should probably read it myself. Um, the books I like are kind of all over the place. They're not related to uh, tech. But you know, if you're interested in, in, in what those are, then I would say Ben Oakley's The Famished Road, uh, which is the story of a, a, a young child who in, uh, in Africa, The Power of One, um, you know, Sons and Lovers by D.H. Lawrence. Um, actually, oddly enough, Maximum City, mostly because I was born in Bombay and I think that's a cool book. 
Um, so all the, all of Murakami, completely random. The farther away I am from healthcare and technology, the the more I like the book. <laughs> awesome. Do you also have a favorite philosopher? No. Don't. Not really. I mean, I just like most people just randomly pick up Kian from Twitter. I notice how like everybody has smart things to say on Twitter. I do too, all the time. So you know, at least seemingly smart things. So no, not really. You know, life is life is enough of a philosopher itself. You know, how often do you forget your wallet at home? A lot. My God, <laughs> did you talk to my wife? This is a very unnerving question. I, 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 I'm nervous now that you probably have connections to my family in ways that I don't know. But uh, regularly, regularly, I think I've renewed my Amex card at least four or five times this year because I just <laughs> keep losing it all the time, you know. Uh, what is one thing about you which most people don't know? I love mountaineering. Uh-huh. I think most people don't know this. Uh, well, I mean, not that most people have to know this also, but it's, a, you know, a mountain shows you a mirror. Because whatever your personality or character is, it comes out. If you're a cranky person, deep down, you become super cranky. If you are a person who's a team player, over time, under low oxygen, your reality shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love it. It's just great. You know, some amount of continuous pain <laughs> over time, physical pain really brings up a test of, uh, of who you really are as a person and uh, helps you grow. So that's something that I think I don't talk about too much, but I care about a lot. One thing a lot of people talk about, and you haven't really tweeted much, I follow you there, is uh, like, do you have any productivity hack or a morning routine which you are very particular about? I'm just awful, man. I mean, like all of the productivity hacks are just, you know, I, you, I don't know, maybe you empathize with this. You know, I, I wish I was like those visionary people who had like these amazing tricks that they do to do things. The truth is, I like sit and talk to you. Now I'll work for like an hour or so. And then like at midnight, I'll decide I want to watch Netflix. You know, and then like at two o'clock, I'll be like, what am I doing? I have a whole days of work in front of me. So I think I'm mostly miserable. And like most people like us kind of plodding through life, uh, you know, hacking through life in some ways. I would say the only thing that I have learned over time to do, which was very hard to do, is actually force myself not to think about work. Um, I think most of us are obsessed with what we do. It does not make us more productive. You know, um, I think if we actually cut ourselves away from work and let the team you have built, the time that you've created take care of it a little bit, you end up probably succeeding a lot more. So this mythical idea of the 24 seven OCD CEO, it's not really a very worthwhile way of actually living life, in my opinion. Um, But unfortunately, outside of that small insight that probably you already have, I don't have really any productivity hack. Don't read books about business and tech. (laughs) That I can tell you works very well. (laughs) 
Puneet, thank you so much for taking this time to walk us through your journey, the product thinking, about telling us about Suki. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, uh, it's going to be, uh, I mean, a, a pretty important episode for this part of Slingshot, especially, uh, you know, the Suki angle on AI and ML, uh, that's going to be unique. Again, you're talking mostly to Indian startups, and I don't think we'll come across a Suki-like company here in this ecosystem. Uh, thanks again so much, uh, and uh, we'll leave you to finish your one hour of work and then let you go to Netflix. Thanks. Good to see hard, you. Hard, hard to do Netflix today, but uh, thank you for the opportunity. I want to also like wish you all the best. You're starting something, and I hope you succeed. You know, entrepreneurship is hard, and uh, you know you have you have great friends with you along the way. So hopefully you will do very well. And thanks for the opportunity. I hope it was useful. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, guys. Take care. Take care.